And for love's sake, each mistake, oh, you forgave. And soon both of us learn to trust, not run away. It was no time to play. We build it up. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, it's another fun producer episode this week. We're talking to the multi-Grammy and Emmy-winning producer, engineer, and mixer, Elliot Shiner. So, back in the early 70s, Elliot is a protege of the great Phil Ramone. He learns at Phil's feet. And he becomes one of the most successful producers of the 70s and 80s and beyond, but that's mostly what we cover in here. One of the first big albums that he works on is Van Morrison's Moondance album. But listen to some of the people that we that come up in this conversation. First of all, there's Ashford and Simpson, of course. He produced several albums of theirs, including this song, Solid, which is why you're listening to it. I love this song. He did a lot of work with Steely Dan. I mean, these are these are people putting out the most high quality work available at this time. There's also George Benson, there's Billy Joel, Bruce Hornsby, Bobby McFerrin, John Denver, Shaka Khan, Fleetwood Mac, The Eagles, Steve Lukather, and many others that come up in this conversation. Well, as we all know, there's not really the budgets to pay for legendary producers like Elliot anymore. But along the way, his career starts to pivot, and he goes to work for Panasonic and Acura, who are trying... He is working on improving the audio stereo quality available in Acura cars. And part of that is also remixing classic albums in the new kind of Atmos 5.1 surround sound format and merging these two things into a car stereo, right? So now, as you know, a lot of this stuff is over my head. I'm not technical at all. I don't understand it, but we talk about it in here. So for you, like, audio heads... You're really going to love this, I think, because you'll find out what he's up to. He is a legend in so many circles. We are so lucky to hear from him. I can't wait for you to hear it. He called me from his home in Connecticut. In getting ready to talk to you, I was going back over so much of your work, of course, I know by heart. Some of it I wanted to reacquaint myself with, and I had the best time listening back to the Ashford and Simpson albums. Uh, send it so so satisfying and solid is th- those are the three that you did with them right yeah i think so okay do you remember anything about that period because well both valerie and nick were dear friends really you know, 
we got along really well. I, I'd known Valerie since the day I got in the business. So, yeah. Oh, what's she, that story? She was a jingle singer. Oh, sure. I mean, she did all these songwriting things, but she was a jingle singer, and, and everybody was making money that way. She was actually married at the time to a keyboard player named Paul Griffin, who is a pretty pretty amazing keyboard player and they eventually divorced and she married nick uh so we'd known each other for a long time and i remember doing dates with them and they always had an arranger and they would do it old motown style you know they'd come in and one three-hour session they'd get three tracks so i think we were two days on tracks do six hours a day each day and they had their tracks yeah. and i wouldn't do vocals or anything else with them they'd go off and do vocals with somebody else or whatever overdubs and i'd mix it mm. okay did you what was it like working with them they're both such fantastic songwriters both together and independently and those the two 70s albums you worked on are just fantastic slabs of 70s r&b send it with like bougie bougie on it and stuff so good <laughs> that was that was me that That's was you That song was written for me. They used to call me Bougie Bougie. What? You're the, <laughs> you are the Bougie Bougie of that song? Yeah. What does that mean? Why? I mean, I know what the word Bougie means, but why yeah. you? And they thought I had money, and I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so good. So yeah. good. And then by the time Solid comes around, they have their first giant hit. Well, not their first a bigger hit than the other hits with that one and the 80s are in there and it's 80s production how was working with them on solid different than the 70s stuff that you did well solid phil Moan was producing a movie and he was looking for songs and he wanted to get them in and i ended up co-producing with i think it was james newton howard oh that might be and and tim the guy from ambrosia so yeah it was the only thing i did on that record i was at that point in my life i was doing so many other things mm -hmm. i just didn't have the time huh. 
What movie was it? Do you remember? I don't remember that song being in a movie. Well, you know, that was early 80s. Yeah, yeah. So that it's, um, won't go back that far. I understand. My That song, all, speaking of sentimental things, when my daughter, who's 16 now, was a little girl, a little baby, um, I would put her on my lap and we would sing patty cake, obviously, with the hand gestures. And then we would sing solid. I would sing solid to her. And we had a little dance. And it's still like our song. And uh, mm-hmm. so anyway, thank you for contributing to the beauty of my relationship with my daughter <laughs> by making that song. Yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Speaking of other kind of R&B things, you worked closely with George Benson for a while, too. Uh, y- yeah. It, it, I think it was just a one album called 2020. If I had to live my life without you near me, the days would all be empty. The nights would seem so long. I see forever oh so clearly I might have been in love before but it never felt this strong our dreams are young and we both know they'll take us where we want to go hold me now touch me now That I saw that, and that, so here's my question: because the next couple albums after that, he focuses way more on jazz and um, like ballads and stuff like that. That's what he was. I mean, he was jazz right. guy. He and was. I, I think my introduction to him was through Tommy Lapuma. Mm. He he wanted a record. He had a, a studio on Maui. And he wanted to record there, and Tommy brought me out to do the stuff at his place. And uh, that's when I met him. And that stuff was more jazz-like. Then I worked with Russ Teitelman Mm -hmm. on 2020, and that was anything but jazz. Yeah, yeah. He was, uh, you know, he he would do, he would, if he wanted to go pop and R&B, he did great. And if you wanted to go jazz, he did great that too, at that too. And he sometimes had separate like fan bases for each. And that 2020 album is so strong. Do you still talk to Russ? Not often. Okay. Not he's often. somebody else I'd love to interview and I've never been able to find him. And, uh, but he's worked on a lot of stuff too. Did you two have kind of a, were you friends back then or colleagues? Uh, we were f- friends. Okay. And colleagues. Yeah, we we both moved to Connecticut at the same moment. Oh, really? And I saw the house, not knowing he was going to buy it, uh, 
and I was thinking about buying it. Then I found out Russ was buying it, and they live maybe five minutes by car from where we were. Yeah. And uh, so I knew him, he and his wife, Carol. I knew them. uh, Actually, Russ and Carol were my first son's godparents. Oh, man. So we had known each other for a while. Yeah. Where do you live now? Are you in New York? No, I'm in Reading, Connecticut. Oh, still in Connecticut. Okay. Yeah, I spent my life in New York. And when my first boy was born, I just wanted him to experience what I did. But I was in Brooklyn. And I could go out anytime, day or night, and go wherever I wanted. And I wanted him to have the same opportunity. Yeah, I don't blame you. It's so beautiful up there, too. Yeah. Um, Okay. Well, so that we, uh, you mentioned how hard it is sometimes to remember those old days. Let's hurry then, because we got to talk about Van Morrison and we got to talk about Queen. Tell me about working with Van Morrison. Moondance, I think you were on two of his albums, or at least two, but Moondance is like the, the classic. Born before the wind, also younger than the sun. Yeah, the bonnie boat was one as we sail into the mystic. Hark now, hear the sailors cry. Smell the sea and feel the sky Let your soul and spirit fly into the mystic And where that foghorn blows I will be coming home Yeah, when the foghorn blows, I wanna hear it. I don't have to fear it, and I wanna rock you. Is he as mercurial as mercurial to work with as we imagine? Yeah. Is he? (laughs) I mean, there is not a white guy who sings like Van. He is the best white singer of all time and you know we made those records we made moon dance it was all live you know really the, the recording format was a track analog so and a track was kind of brand new at the time and i remember looking at the tracks and trying to figure out well what do you use all these tracks for and it was like, oh, you know, you can keep the bass drum safe or like. So his band, it was piano, bass, drums, him playing guitar, a uh, John Platania playing acoustic, and there, there was horn section. And, you know, I used mostly eight tracks. And I think on one song, I used six tracks. And it was. It was a total vibe, you know, making records like that, watching guys play parts 
after they heard something from another player. Yeah. You know? And unfortunately, it doesn't exist anymore. But it was that kind of recording to me is what I was all about. You know, I wanted guys in the same room. I wanted to watch what they did. Yeah. And it's unfortunate. Now, you know, you record a drum track or sample a drum track yeah. and say, get a bass player in LA to put a part on and then send it to a guy in text to put a guitar part on. You know, it's just Yeah. You know, and, and it's, it's all different. It's all Pro Tools and they all sound alike. I you agree. know it's just amazing to me. And I can't do it. Yeah. I mean I have a I have a, a workstation, not Pro Tools. I use Nuendo, which oh. to me is a far better interesting yeah i think about people like you because uh, we have a lot of producers on here and it's just not what it used to be there were the budgets there were we'll talk about steely dan here in a minute speaking about budgets but there were the budgets there were the studios there was the time there was the the focus and when the, the industry decided they didn't need that anymore the market made them decide people not buying product anymore made them decide that they didn't need those things anymore right unfortunately yeah. right but in the marketplace all they're selling now is reissued or remixed through atmos stereo yeah and they, they don't even care about the multi-track atmos situation they just want a new stereo track and it you know i was on the phone with dolby uh, and you know these guys were telling me you know that seems to be what they're interested in and i said to them so you're going to tell me that atmos is going to put a download on its own and two track and it's going to be as good as my original mix i don't think so no uh, amos uh moon dance was just remixed by steve wilson and serio it's not as good really no i mean you know the the, the atmos is fine i i did uh a 5.1 on moon dance too which is i thought it was pretty good and there was this whole online thing who's better is it even wilson or Elliot china and i personally don't give a shit because i'm not likely to mix in uh in, yeah. in amos i just did the first thing and it was very time consuming yeah. you know you spend more time thinking about what has to happen here and how much the stereo download is important to what the record companies want. It's, it's just wrong to me. Yeah. Aren't you, I mean, you have devoted my understanding and a lot of it's over my head. I'm not, I'm not very technical, um, but you have devoted the last several years of your career to sound and um, car sound specifically right yeah, yeah tell us about that because one of my hesitant i don't know if hesitation is the right word you were talking a second about atmos and like am i going to download a song off of itunes or whatever and it's going to have the 
Atmos quality to it, that would that doesn't seem logical. And I feel that way too, especially about cars, because that's my preferred place of listening to music. I like going on a drive and popping in my CD. But you're trying to improve that experience. How what what how so? What's the ideal situation? Well, for me, I was showing all this 5.1 remixes and uh starting to think about it. Who had a 5-1 system in their house? Yeah. So I went back to what used to be. And the first place you heard an 8-track cartridge was in the car. Mm-hmm. And then a cassette. And then a CD. And then five. what turned out to be 5-1. So I thought, I need to get a manufacturer involved in this and put it in cars. And I went to uh, a DVD Empire uh, junket kind of thing. And all the auto companies, all the companies that made uh, systems for cars were there. Because car manufacturers don't do that. You know, they, they'll hire somebody and then call it their own. Right. So... I went to, there were eight manufacturers there. I went to all of them and they all said like, you know, that won't happen in the car. Uh-huh. You know, the, that many speakers and and even if it did, what do we need you for? And I said, well, I make music. These guys you're buying systems from don't make music. They have an idea of what they think sound should be in a car. Yeah. But it's not accurate at all. You know, I used to go to this story right before Acura came on. I said, look, you know, I know what these things sound like. I I played Moondance. And I said, look, there's one issue here where we were in the same room for two weeks and Van was playing the same guitar all the time. He comes in this one day and he starts playing the guitar. And I'm saying, God, this is not good. And I walked out into the studio to listen to to his guitar. And it, it sounded great. It was the same to me. So I figured, well, it has to be either the cable or the mic or the input. And it ended up being the mic. I used a similar mic, but a newer one. And it was all fine. Now, a guy who's doing music, he wouldn't know that. He wouldn't know even how the guitar is supposed to sound. Right. You know? So I made that point, and Acura said, totally into it. Mm. And uh, I got my start doing it, and I've been doing it now for 20 years for Acura. Yeah. So is the idea then that Acura cars, with your help and guidance, the sound systems within Acura cars for the last 20 years or going forward are going to have that kind of app or 5.1 or whatever capability in them? And the hope is that that sort of spreads to other car manufacturers as well? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, right now, they would like to do... Uh, Atmos in cars. Dolby has, you know, is trying to say you have to do Atmos, and it can be done. 
you know, it's not a big issue, more speakers, and that's fine. It it's for me personally, when Sit came out, it was more authentication mm -hmm. of what it sounded like to me in the studio. Mm -hmm. So I knew that what I was playing sounded exactly like I remembered it. And when I would play my friend's stuff to tune as well, their stuff sounded great. Yeah. So I thought, and I'm pretty sure that we actually had the most authentic sounds that's available. Like right now, Harmon Carden has got eight zillion manufacturer names, but there are no parts from like B&O, they don't get parts from B&O and put it in their cars, but the car company is saying, well, maybe they think that's what will happen. And I know I'm being outspoken here, but when, when I take a stand, I always follow through, and I don't hold punches. I mean, I did a rant about Dolby uh, last year. It was supposed to be a, an interview with an English guy, no, a Sweetwater guy about uh, doing the gaucho. And at the very end, he said, you did a 5-1 on gaucho, right? I said, yeah. And he said, well, what do you think of, of Amos? I said, Amos, don't get me started. Uh -huh. You don't want to get me started on this. And the theory was, it was not about Amos. Uh -huh. I'm okay with that. Right. Whatever they do, the system's fine. It works well. What it is, when they started this, they made the decision of deciding who could use this system. In my years as an engineer, I've never been told by any manufacturer or designer, you can... you. Oh, we don't want you to use this. Yeah. You know? and, and then they wanted to outfit your room to the way they thought it was best. I'm not going to change my room for them. Yeah. You know, I listen to the way I listen. And, you know, there is one more than Atmos formats. There are three other systems that have their own form, their own structure. So I hung tight. I caught a lot of abuse, you know, but that's what I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, they've got a, the music industry has to find some way to enhance the listening experience for lots of reasons for the, for market share, for revenue, for the listeners, for the fans, for all of it. And um, you're clearly on the cutting edge of that. Speaking of which we should talk about, that's a nice segue into Steely Dan. I mean, a lot has been said about Asia and the Peg solo. Jay Graydon's been on here a couple of times, and we've talked about it and stuff. Um, what do you? My impression of Steely Dan, especially on Asia and probably on Gaucho too, is that they have a framework, maybe, of what they're going for in terms of sound and arrangements for songs. But it's kind of they'll know it when they hear it. And so they apply multiple takes, multiple instruments, multiple settings, whatever, to a song to see what works best until they hear they have the eureka moment and they know they found it. 
Yeah, it's a little different. Okay. You know, when when they would record a song with the band, when they knew it was like the great moment, it was according to how the band played with each other. It wasn't sonic. It wasn't anything about how these guys are playing with each other. Donald and Walter never told me how to record track. You know, oh. I go in and, and get a sound up. They were always cool with it. it they knew, but they knew that, uh, you know, I would get them something they found pleasing. But it, it was how the band played together. I mean, they they do any one cut, maybe, on, on like uh, uh, Rural Scam and listen to the way these four or five people were playing the cut. And look over at Gary and say, you know, we're going to go get dinner. This is not working. You know, tell these guys it's not working. Basically, they were saying, they would say, fire the band and we'll get a new band. And we four or five totally different players. And it was a combination of how these guys played with each other. Were these the four or five right guys that would pull the song off and make it really interesting. Mm. So it was more okay. about that's interesting. When I listen to Royal Scam, Royal Scam does sound like bands, like the chemistry among players. Asia and especially Gaucho and Nightfly, for that matter, do sound to me like a band trying to capture a sonic or a sound or a feel. And you're saying that 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 was more secondary to the chemistry or the vibe of the guys playing together. I mean, they always wanted a great sounding record, but you know, it was really about the band. Okay. Yeah. So that's so interesting to me. Gaucho, especially. So another little bit of personal tidbit, my dad, he's, he died of COVID a couple of years ago, but he was a, um, a United airlines flight attendant. And so I grew up, traveling wherever I wanted with my dad. And when I was a kid, you might remember the the plunger headphones you would get. And in the back of the airline magazine would be like a radio stations. And right. K-19 to me sounds like, de- like red-eye flights from San Francisco to New York and hotels with small television sets and... Uh, you know, steam coming out of manhole covers with like taxi cabs driving over the top.
it it is such a song a song of a sound and a place that um takes me back to that moment few few artists capture a, a feeling like that like steely dan does don't you think yeah i agree yeah, yeah and, and lately i had to tell you for the past two months people call me all the time wanting to do interviews about steely and why is this happening now and you know, where's it coming from i don't know that's I mean, really interesting they were uh, great they were always great you know and working with the two of them and gary you know every day was different yeah. and it was exciting to come into work and not have any idea what you were doing or what you were going to get but it, it they were my friends i loved working with these guys how does one become a friend of donald fagan he just seems like number one kind of grumpy number two a genius but number three particular about who he's willing to spend his precious time with and he well, picked you me and a few other guys you know sure. he he uh i don't know how to describe it he was a friend like yeah. he'd say things like uh when we we're doing gaucho he said uh you know what i think i want to work christmas day and I remember looking at him that day going, Christmas Day? Why? What for? You know, yeah. maybe there's something else to do. And he looked at me and said, you have more pressing things to do? <laughs> and I was single at the time, and I said, well, yeah, I guess not. <laughs> I was reading an interview or an article about the making of uh, it was well, about the peg solo specifically on Asia. And, uh, there was a quote in there from somebody about how unlimited resources and unlimited, um, uh, studio time can be kind of a lethal combination because I would, I think he called it guaranteed sales. Like we know we're going to make our money back on this album. So let the guys take as long as they want to do whatever it is they do. Like, can anyone be that sure that Steely Dan is going to deliver millions in sales for you? Well, their first four records sold a lot. Yeah, they that's true. had great success. Yeah. So they never spent the kind of money that they did on, on Asia. Yeah. Now, that was, I guess that was a, a little over a year year and a half maybe but gaucho was 2.2 years oh really man yeah. a lot of work sometimes but, i i like them both but sometimes i like gaucho even better go ahead sorry i think i interrupt bro scam for me really <laughs> oh the lyrics are amazing yeah um yeah it, it was fun i yeah. i love working on this stuff was donald any different by the time of nightfly um did he and walt did he need, just need to do something without the baggage of the steely dan name on it were they fighting and he wanted to go so, so they broke up what was the thinking there well after gaucho uh walter walter had an accident during making gaucho when we were overdubbing or getting close to mixing and uh, he got hit by a car and like every bone in his body i forgot about this yeah just 
really bad. And so I think Donald was, you know, making this record by myself at this point. I have no input from Walter. And they always were there together. Like when we mixed Asia, they were always there. <laughs> and now it wasn't happening. I don't know if something happened. And Donald had all these great songs, and he just yeah. wanted to fly. Yeah. New, and I, uh, New Frontier is so, it's just one of the best singles ever. Yeah, and it was more tailored to making it sound really a lot different than uh, any of the Steely Dan records. Yeah. It was the first thing we recorded uh, digitally in on a 3M machine. And uh, it surprised me when I, I walked into, uh, I was working with Billy Joel right after that and I walked into the arena and his sound guy was setting up a system with Nightfly yeah. I had never heard anything I'd ever done yeah. used for that and I went on and I said what are you doing with that man he said a sounding record said, it is wow. an amazing sounding record it is it is it's a really good record yeah 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 what were you doing with billy i knew that you you engineered the songs in the attic live yeah. album, right yeah did yeah. you do something else besides that with him i no. mean if phil ramon is your mentor yes are you i'm imagining you're in the room during like the stranger i mean phil and no. billy go hand in hand no no you know i was already i at that point when he was doing stranger uh i was doing so many other things yeah. like van it, when he was doing stranger i was doing van's second record yeah. or second record with me right and, and uh no phil and i were always good friends but we seldom worked together okay. uh, yeah. call me up if he had a problem he said i you know can you show up i, I need you to help me that's but, great didn't happen much man imagine the great phil ramone calling you and saying hey can you help me with something that is yeah, not very good i did call at two or three in the morning <laughs> he's doing a date and said i can't get to, to sam right can you come down 
uh, at two in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I guess as as honorable or as like uh, prestigious or as as a call like that might be, the result is bad because it means you got to get up in the middle of the night and go help. Yeah. Something. Well, he was my mentor. Yeah. And I, I learned just about everything from Phil. I bet. Okay. I want to ask you about Queen, obviously. You're on Night of the Opera. What did you do exactly with Queen at that point? I hadn't done anything up to then. And uh, they asked me to do the 5.1 mix. Oh, of, okay. Of Night of the Opera. Okay. And it was, you know, here was a piece. The whole album was recorded on 24 track. Uh -huh. And Night the Opera, there was too much information on any one track. Like oh, you have vocals, like background vocals, or or Freddie, and there'd be guitar parts on there. So the EQ was different. Everything was different. So I ended up. It was the beginning of uh, Nuendo, and. We cha we changed everything to Dig, and now everything that had it, that was combined was now separate. Mm. So this twenty four track ended up being ninety six tracks. Ooh. Yeah, that's how well they they used the tape. I mean, yeah. Brian, you know, you used twenty four track analog to make this monster record. You know, incredible just amazing to me that is amazing yeah. um i didn't realize it's sometimes i'm unsure whether you've worked on an or the original like in moon dance's case you're there with van in the room with the band in the 70s yeah. or if it's a remix or like i you've worked on several rem albums and i believe those were all after the fact remix yeah, that's right albums, yeah 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 so it, i might get these kind of mixed up sometimes um, okay Another one I wanted to, so one of my favorite albums of all time is the first Bruce Hornsby record. Did you work on that in real time in the eighties with him? Yeah. Okay. I love him. Um, I wish he would talk to me, but he won't, he doesn't want to talk about the past and that's <laughs> the answer I always get. And I could see that about him. I did have Joe Puerta on here, the, the bassist. Yeah. And we were talking about it and he gave me one of my favorite bits of trivia that I would never have known otherwise in the whole eight years of doing this. He told me that Bruce almost signed to Wyndham Hill, the Wyndham Hill label before putting the band together and joining whatever it was that he joined that made him popular. And I always just think of a parallel universe where Bruce Hornsby is like a George Winston or a Yanni or a, you know, David Lands or something like that, instead of the fantastic kind of Americana pop heartland rocker that he is. Yeah. And so when you, obviously Bruce is a sort of a belligerent, I I have a vision and I'm doing it my way kind of guy, not in a jerky way, but he knows he's very self-assured. What's yeah. it like working with Bruce? Uh, it, it was tough for me because... Really? When I, I I was called by the label, they said, do you want to do this record? We'd like you to produce it. I said, yeah, you know, I, I heard the songs and was trying to figure out, well, is this country? Is this 
I couldn't figure out what it was, but I was willing to, I, I want to take a chance on this because I love uh, Bruce playing. He was just a monster. When it got down to recording, I said to Bruce, look, you know, very few artists who are piano players make it. You know, Elton John, uh, Billy Joel, you know, but there's something about what they do that makes the piano different. You have that ability, but the piano itself needs a different sound. So I talked him into using a piano at Oceanway. And we were in Studio B. He came and listened to it, tried it out. And he says, well, the action is exactly what I'd like, but it does sound totally different than anything I've ever heard. And that was the point. Mm -hmm. You know, you hear this piano and, you know, you go, oh, geez, what is that? Yeah. So we recorded that way, but Bruce made me go to like Mad Hatter to Chick's studio. Well, let's try the Bosendorf around here and see what it sounds like. And every time we do it, come out and say, okay, it's not the same. You know, it, it just be a regular piano, maybe played by a studio player. Wow. You know, but here was this totally different sounding piano being played by Bruce. So it had a great deal of impact on what the overall record sounds like. Yeah. And, you know, we did it that wow. way. I think he was kind of pissed at me at the end huh. uh, because he didn't like the piano. And I think he felt he sort of gave in to uh, having to use that piano. Well, I, his original idea for a producer was Neil Dorfson. And Neil had just come off, I think he had done Sting and Jim McCartney, and he was coming off these huge records. And he had the same thing as I did, is a country? What is this? Yeah. And uh, it took off, and it, it became a huge record. Mm -hmm. And so the next time he was ready to record, he called Neil. And and Neil jumped at the opportunity. Yeah. So, so Neil did uh, the second album, Scenes from the South Side. Yeah, uh, and you didn't do the you didn't you weren't in there. That I guess. Yeah, so it's first so many things to kind of unpack with what you said. So first and foremost, you and it sounded like Bruce was in was in agreement with you. The piano sound. Well, this particular piano at Ocean Way Studio had the sound that you saw as being perfect for Bruce's album. And it yeah. sounds like he, and no other piano and no other studio captured Not the sound me. like you did. No, that's incredible. And you got to admit when you heard the way it is the first time you go, wow, this yes. piano is different. And yes.
In the first couple of weeks that it was moving up charts, he went on a local radio show in L.A., and the guy said, Bruce, this piano sound is amazing. You know, and he went through it saying, you know, I didn't really want to use it. Elliot wanted to use it. And, you know, it definitely has a different sound, you know, and it, it, it kind of makes the record. Then he goes on a Rick Dees show a couple of weeks later, and uh, Rick Dees says the same thing, you know, where did you get this piano sound? And he said, well, you know, I've been working hard on this my whole life. <laughs> That's the way it turned after that. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Well, Elliot, help me find the exact piano in the exact spot. Um, no, the, the one thing that pissed me off, and, and, and I grew to like Bruce. Mm -hmm. You know, we used to go to dinner. You know, I take my youngest son, who is a year old or two years old, and, you know, we'd all go out to dinner, and he'd like my kid, and it was all nice. But when he was nominated for Grammy for Best New Artist, he thanked the entire world except me. You know, I said, well, I guess that's what it was. I and then about that. We, we, didn't, we didn't meet for a long time. I went to record Woodstock mm -hmm. and he was playing with the band and I was making sure everything was set. I'm starting to walk down the stage and Bruce is walking up the stairs and he looked at me and said, Who'd have known? <laughs> That's all he said. That and so was it like all for all is forgiven by that point? Hopefully, no. It was just you uh, know. That's it. Talk about. Oh, uh, you know and his. That's I, oh, okay. Go ahead. You yeah. know, I, you can't get along with a hundred percent of the artists you work yeah. with, and yeah. that happens. I don't him any less. Right. And I think the record was great. I didn't produce the whole record. Mm. Uh, Huey Lewis produced uh, a bunch of the cuts Jake as well. Platter and, yeah. yeah, the funny thing is that the way it is was on the list for you to produce. And he said, no, nah, I don't want this one. You want to switch. And there was a song, I think, about a brothel in there. Oh. And Huey said, yeah, I'll take that. You can have this song. <laughs> <laughs> and I saw you afterwards. He said, "How stupid was I?" <laughs> right. <laughs> well, Bruce is clearly a searcher as an artist. He, with every subsequent album, he continue. He that's why he won't talk to me about the past. He just refuses to stay in one place. He's constantly trying to push and see how far he can go. Some of his albums, he even raps on them and has like 
you know, beatboxing on them or whatever. He just is so restless as an artist. So I guess as sad as that makes me hear about you, I guess that fits maybe with his personality a little bit because he just seems to always be kind of moving on to the next thing. Yeah, no, it doesn't make me sad Okay, because I worked on the record and I'm proud of the record. So I'm not sad about it at all. I would have liked to remain friends with Bruce. It just didn't work out that way. Yeah, yeah, he's a trip. Okay, okay. Um, I want to ask you about Bobby McFerrin because you Mm. worked with him. And if I, again, if I have my timeline correct, you would have worked with him before the Don't Worry, Be Happy period. You did some of those albums before that, right? I, I only worked on one cut. Oh, really? Oh, which one? Bobby and Phoebe Snow. Oh. And we did that. Yeah, it was way before that yeah. we did. And it was f- funny, you know, I saw him at this year's Grammys, and I tried to get up to him. He wouldn't talk to anybody who was coming up. Really? So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if maybe this is something. Huh. But uh, it was fun to do. A guy that has so much talent, you know. Amazing. Being able to do that stuff, no bands. Yeah. My God, where does this come from? No kidding. I agree. Yeah, it's amazing. I feel like he gets a bad rap because, I don't know, he had one fluke hit that, um, you know, isn't black enough or isn't, is too different. And I think if you walked into some jazz club in a big city and a guy who you'd never heard of named Bobby McFerrin stood up and started doing the things he does with the singing and the batting. You would think you had just stumbled on the most amazing thing you'd ever seen. Yeah. And we're going to, we're going to make, we're going to put him down for that because he's not, I don't know, hard enough or rapping or what. I don't know, but he's great. He's obviously so talented. Yeah. I never thought of it that way. You know, he came off a little more jazz like to me. Yeah. You know, he had a sensibility of, what all this meant and he knew it in his head long before he did it you know and that was amazing to me yeah 
How do you, do you, um, your answer to this might be more than I can even handle, but when, I mean, you as an engineer, you're setting up the microphones and the sound and everything that we're talking about. Do you approach a guy who's doing it all with his mouth and his body differently than you do a guy playing the guitar or hitting a drum? You know, probably now that's the way it would be approached. Okay. Back then, it wasn't. He had a vocal mic. That's it. Everything on one mic playing to that mic. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, I wondered if you did something different with that. No. Um, What about John Denver? Seasons of the Seasons of the West of the Heart. Yeah, Yeah, I did. I did one album with him. Yeah. Uh, Me and Roger, we we teamed up for that. Uh, John was truly one of the nicest human beings that ever existed. I am so glad to hear you say that. So glad. A wonderful guy. That's good. So much fun to be with. And I remember uh, Roger and I got nominated for our first Grammy. Really? And John was the host of the Grammy show. For oh, that's long. right. Yeah. And he made a bet with both of us. He said, you guys are not going to win. <laughs> and Roger said, what do you want to bet on that? And uh, I don't remember what he asked, but he said, if you guys win, I have to go do, uh, I'm playing a casino in, uh, playing at Harris for a week. Okay. He said, okay, if you guys win, I'll fly you in my plane to Harris. You can spend a week with me. No way. And we won. And the next (laughs) day he said, okay. You got to be here at the airport today. <laughs> Lake Tahoe. Is that what we're talking yes, about? Lake yes. Lake Tahoe. Yeah. Um, that's so funny that you say that it, he, I mean, few people owned the seventies like John Denver did. And those mm-hmm. songs are still so gorgeous and still hold up. And by the early eighties, I feel like he was starting. I mean, he, he was starting to kind of lose his mojo, you know, um interests and uh styles and uh, attention had kind of started to move on and um i feel like in the 80s he kind of struggled to find himself a little bit or find a sound that worked for him and your album seasons of the heart that has shanghai breezes on it which is one of his last great hits I just can't seem to find the words I'm looking for To say the things that I want to say I can't remember when I felt so close to you It's almost more than I can bear Though I seem a half a million miles from you You are in my heart and living there And the moon and the stars are the There are lovers who walk hand in hand in the park 
um, was sort of, I don't know, that was like one of the last great things he did for a while, it felt like. He seemed a little lost after that. Yeah, he did something else. I know Roger worked with him okay. after. Okay. And it might have been a, a, a vocal thing. Oh, uh, maybe. Speaking. I don't know, but I know he won a Grammy for it. Yeah, so. yeah, he did. Did you, um, you know, unfortunately, um, he, you know, struggled with alcoholism. Did you ever see that for yourself? No. Really? Yeah. No, met- he, he may have because he was getting divorced when uh, I met sure. him. And he had this huge love affair with his wife. Yeah. And uh, the whole thing fell apart. And he was so devastated. So if he drank it, that might have been possibly why. Yeah. my I mentioned earlier about my dad being a flight attendant. My dad told me a story once about... Um, he worked a flight where John Denver was on and John and I believe his son came on before everybody and they sat in the first seats and um, before they even could take off he was already kind of this was like in the 90s or late 80s 90s he was already kind of shaking through withdrawal and so he needed a drink to settle his nerves and to even get normal well Mm. before the rest of the passengers even got on the plane you know poor guy yeah, I, I I guess we were working with him in 1980. Yeah, yeah, I think it was before it became a problem. Yeah. That's interesting. Okay. You mentioned earlier about your friend, I can't remember who it was, but your friend inviting you out to Maui to his studio. Did you stay sure. there? Did you, did you work on other people's things? I always get it. I'm just like air studios or compass points. I'm fascinated by these studios that are in tropical locations. They must be the most fun places to create anything because you're, you're in paradise while you're doing it. They can be, but you tend to want to be doing other things. Ah, uh, yeah. So there's distractions too. Yeah. It's like, you know, oh man, I, I could be on the beach right now. Uh, <laughs> that's true. I didn't think about that. Yeah, that's true. Um, what about, uh, Shaka Khan? <laughs> You worked on Feel For You, right? Best. Okay, tell me why I love Shaka Khan and that song and that album hold up. She's the, the nicest human being ever. Really? And I worked on, I mixed 
the very last album of Chaka and Rufus, which was recorded live at a hotel in New York. And there was a huge hit off that. Really big hit. As big as I feel for you. Yeah. remember having mixed that I was by myself Russ was producing it a cinema copy he said great and off to it it went and then I heard on the radio for the first time going, I mixed that you know it was like wow where did that come from no kidding, no kidding. Yeah. yeah what was it like now oh go ahead please she was just so wonderful, so nice. So, you know, everything came from her heart. You know, she yeah. loved everybody. That is so good to hear because you imagine sometimes there could be like a lot of diva behavior sometimes, and um, especially with her. And it sounds like it's not that way at all. No. That's I great. Never saw that. Um, my understanding is that Arif Martin, the great Arif Martin, had a lot to do with the with that album and sort of, I don't know, masterminding it or sort of re. There were a number. Oh, I mean, Foster had a lot to do with it okay. too. Russ Tidelman. Uh -huh. um, you know, there were a whole bunch of different producers that might have come from Arif. I don't know. Okay, was Arif as elegant and amazing to work with as we imagine him to be yeah always yeah yeah he was a gentleman i believe it i believe yeah. it yeah um i want to ask you about another female that you worked with around the time christine mcvee you did her solo album right yes what was that like working with her i was just listening back to it before we talked and um there's that song on there that I'm blanking on the name of now where there's so many guests and she sings it with Steve Winwood, who I love Steve Winwood. And um, was that just everyone and their dog being willing to just come in and participate with Christine McVie because she's so nice yeah. or what? I only mixed the record. So it was, uh -oh. okay. when we got to it, it was Russ again yeah. and, and Christine. And uh, I ended up doing the dance 
with Fleetwood. Yes, you did. I read something about, yes, your story about this is fascinating because, okay, remind me, you needed to make sure that the sound of the marching band coming down the aisles was sounded right. Yes, yeah. was in tune. Tell us this story. I'm probably stealing it from you. Please. Yeah. She, you know, we were doing this thing. It was the same stage I recorded Hell Freezes Over with the Eagles. It was the I Love Lucy stage. And we're just going on about business. And I get the band there at some point, And all the mags for the band were overhead. And it would only catch pieces as, it, as they marched towards stage. And then about an hour before, I said, do we know that these guys are going to be in tune? <sighs> so I left, and I was talking to Stevie at the time. I said, you know, I'm going to go in and make sure these guys are in tune. And uh, took a pitch pipe with me and went in, here's your A. Uh -huh. You guys keep this. Before yes. you come out on stage, retune. Uh huh. Yeah, and it was fun. Man, what an I, I had never because that album, as you know, was huge. I mean, it yeah. reintroduced that them to everybody, and I had never considered before what a challenge it must have been. First of all, to make the whole thing sound great, but to make the marching band sound as powerful as it does on Tusk, coming down that aisle and everything. The visual is just of what you, the problem solving that people like you have to do, you know, to make that sure it's perfect. You yeah. Know, I, I didn't know that I could get what was happening. Yeah. You know, would it be like Tusk? And yeah. it wasn't, but it had a different flavor. Yeah. It was close it was enough. Great. Oh, man. Tell me an Eagle story, too. I mean, Hell Freezes Over was a huge comeback for them, too. Reintroduce them. It was, and they were still, right before I got a call from Glenn, they were, you know, do do, do I want to do this? Is this right? And, and then Don and Glenn, I guess, talked about it and thought, yeah, we should do this. And I got a call from Glenn uh, soon after. He said, so, because uh, we were about to make a Glenn Fry record in Nashville. He wanted to do a country approach. Mm -hmm. 
and I was getting static from the label. Well, I'm not a country producer, so right. we want to get somebody else. And I called Glenn. I said, look, you know, they want a country how to do this. And he was upset by it, you know, but it's his career. I said, Glenn, you, you have to do what's right for you. You know, don't worry about me with this. Yeah. And he was all set to do that. And then he calls me up. He says, hey, man, you want to do a new Eagles record? <laughs> I said, oh, no, I'm doing the jazz artist. You know, I don't know. Uh -huh. So uh, that whole thing came about, and Irving called me up. He said, they're in rehearsal now acoustically because a bunch of this will be acoustic. And uh, why don't you come out and just see what's going on, listen to what they're doing, you know? And I, I flew out. I took a morning flight out of New York, got there around noon, and... Uh, went to the rehearsal studio and there are these guys sitting in a circle playing acoustic guitars mm -hmm. and singing. Mm -hmm. And it was like, I had never heard anything like yeah. that. Yeah. It was, I, I, I was for weeks. I, I didn't get back down, you know, because uh -huh. they were so good. Yeah. They were so genius. Yeah. So it was amazing for me. And, and to know that I was going to do this. And now, how am I going to do it? Mm -hmm. Now, I knew the stage, so it was live, and there was an audience. And uh, it was picking the right truck and uh, doing it that way. Mm -hmm. And we did it analog originally. Nice. but digital had pretty much just come out and uh uh we ended up transferring the analog to digital just for ease of work yeah. and it was great i yeah. had a great time. it was time consuming i spent like nine months in la uh at a hotel and working every day because they all had their time of day to be working oh sure like glenn would want to start at eight in the morning mm. you know joe and glenn, <laughs> joe and, and uh uh don felder and uh, timothy would come in later and don we the last one in would come in two or three in the afternoon so i was there from eight in the morning to at least midnight oh seven days a week and then <laughs> Finally, I talked to Glenn. I said, gee, you know, it's been a long time. I'd like to go home and see my kids, my uh -huh. wife. And uh, he said, you know, you do it like every other weekend. Mm -hmm. and, and I did, and we got it all done. And when it came out, it was the first thing those guys have done in uh -huh. seven years. Yeah. And it, it was monumental. Yeah. And here, 30 years later, they just announced their farewell tour. We'll yeah. see what that ends up being. But, yeah, I mean, historic what you did. Um, I have a lot of other – oh, go ahead. What were you going to say? Yeah, you know, think for me is not having Glenn. Yeah. You know? I was going to – you know, I've been debating whether to ask you about this because so many of the people that we've talked about aren't here anymore. 
you know, yeah. Robert Becker. And-, and Glenn was my best friend. Was he really? Oh, yeah. Man. So it, 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 I was sick right before he died. Um, I, I hit my head and on a trip to Cleveland, I went into, uh, I had two brain bleeds and I went into case hospital and they operated on me at the very last minute. Another hour I would have been gone. And I was told everything was okay. And I felt better. I, I got a ride home from a couple of friends. I didn't want to fly. And, uh, but I was better. And they got one of the bleeds, but not the other bleed. And they went to get the other bleed, and they did that. But during that process, I got a brain infection from the hospital. And they called me back in. They said, look, we're going to have to take off half your skull. And we'll do a 3D implant and make it exactly the same, but it'll, it'll be plastic. Yeah, I said okay, and and that day when they did that, I just you know is I I don't feel good about this, yeah. and I never woke up. I went into a coma, oh. and uh, they transferred me from the local hospital to Yale, and they told my kids, my wife, that I was not going to make it. And you might want to call all his friends to say goodbye. Yeah. And my youngest son said, wait a second. He's not going to make it? Well, we don't think so. Well, wrap him up. I'm taking him home. And, and, And my doctors were residents. They weren't even brain doctors yet. Oh. And but my wife called all my friends, guys like Attorney and Frank Filippetti and Massenberg and Al Schmidt and everybody came in just to say goodbye. Yeah. And you know, my oldest son wouldn't he just wouldn't tolerate any of this and he brought in the boom box. He didn't play me anything that I did. Uh-huh. He played music that I loved. And Which was what? Give us an Mar- example. Marvin Gaye. Oh, there you go. Yes. And and he brought in Marvin Gaye one day, and nurse was standing there. He was playing a song, and my foot moved in rhythm. Uh-huh. And the nurse said, he's going to be fine now. And I came out of the coma within a few days, it was about three weeks that I was in there. And I, you know, I ended up being okay. I went to rehab. <clears throat> a number of times, the only bad thing that came out of it is my voice. Okay. I had a, you know, I, I was a great speaker. Yeah. You know, I couldn't do it anymore. Certain words just won't come out, like the combination of a T following an S. I can't uh, do it. Really? Yeah. So, wow. Why did I tell you that? Well, because Glenn, Glenn, did he die while you were in a coma? What had happened was Glenn 
got the idea when I when I was sick to take Hotel California and make it a Broadway show. And my son, who's an engineer, went out to to the studio with Glenn, his studio, and started to record this stuff. And he went out and worked with him. At the end of a few days, Glenn was feeling really bad. And I, I remember Glenn had severe rheumatoid arthritis, and he was taking a drug, which I believe is what killed him uh, for for a couple of years. He would get one injection every month and have him do that every year, and he would struggle to play. And when I got out, he was already sick, and he, he had come to New York. He was getting ready to move to New York, and he bought an apartment here, and uh, he was in the hospital. And when I was able to travel, I went to the hospital to see him. And it was it was very tough. And being best friends with him, and when it finally happened, I was in in Mexico with fish, and uh, I got off playing New York. And uh, Trey called and left a message while I was in flight. I'm so sorry to hear about Glenn. And that was the first time I knew. It was so devastating to me. A friend for so long. He watched my oldest boy grow up. You know, so it it was tough. I was at his wedding. You know, it, it was... Oh, that's so the sad. The fact that, that there was no Glenn in the band, yeah. you know, it was, yeah. it was important. And uh, so whether they break up or not, yeah. I don't know. You know, I it's remember, not the same without Glenn anyway. Yeah, I remember The Who breaking up oh. and made two more tours. Yeah. Yeah. But De- Deacon, Glenn's son, came in to fill for Glenn. <laughs> And a great singer, great top yeah. player, and he carried his weight. Yeah. He did well. Yeah. But you're missing the personality of Glenn. Yeah, I, 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 can, I can see that. Um, last year, I talked to Jack Tempchin. Yeah. Which is also, as you know, a close friend of Glenn's, too. We had a nice chat about they worked so closely together on so many songs and stuff like that. And he painted a similar picture of what a great guy Glenn is, which is interesting because I think you won an Emmy for the sound mixing on the Eagles documentary, which, as you know, became sort of a cultural touch point because of how they don't come off looking very good in that in that documentary. What do you think about that? That's what people want to see. Uh, Okay. And generally, the adversity between band members is what makes makes it happen. Yeah. It sort of puts everything in place, and that's why it's so good. Yeah. That's a great answer. You're right. That tension between multiple dominant personalities in one group or whatever, that's what makes the magic. And, yeah, I can see that. Okay, yeah. I just have a couple more questions for you. Only one more relating to music. When I was looking you up on that same article that tells the story of Peg, you mentioned on there, the, the guy, 
I never try, I try to never ask the question, who's your favorite to work with or whatever. And you said, I really like everyone I've worked with. Yeah, I, I really do like every experience. Yeah. And it's so much of my life. Yeah. Every artist I've ever worked with brought something out of me that wouldn't have happened. You know, so I always enjoyed being a guy who was like their soldier. You know, what do you want to do? Yeah. Let me make this right for you. I I really I can't think of anybody that I didn't like. Okay. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask you too, we have some Patreon supporters and I always tell them who I'm interviewing and if they want to submit questions, they can. And Craig Eagleson submitted a couple, actually. Some of them I've been working into our conversation. Um, Explain to me again, who's? Patreon. Do you know what Patreon is? No. It's basically like a GoFundMe or a donation. So we have okay. listeners who donate a couple of bucks a month and okay. then they... Um, I let them know that as a reward for their donation, I let them know who I'm interviewing. And if they want to submit questions to the guests, okay. they can. Yeah. Do you feel you have a style or approach to production or is it a case by case basis based on the artist? Well, for me, this is to Craig. Yes. Craig Eagleson. Yes. Craig. Craig. Uh, for me personally, uh, I never thought, I always thought it was about the artist and what th their plans were. Phil Ramon taught me that you're there for them. Don't think of yourself as some star and you had some success and some hits and people will come to you because they want what you do. It's not the case. Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily want what you do. They know you're capable Here's what I want, you know, and you have to come through with that. It get it ended up being when I worked with Steely that you know I was all my music was Steely and I couldn't do rock and roll at all. That makes you know? sense. Mm -hmm. and, and and that and I had done a bunch of rock and roll before Steely, mm -hmm. um, and. Uh, I did Aerosmith after just to show. You did? Which one? Nine Lives. I didn't know that. I didn't know yeah. you did Aerosmith Nine Lives. Yeah, oh. mostly mixed. Okay. But, you know, just and, and did uh, orchestra uh -huh. on some of the cuts. And, uh, you know, it wasn't true for me. I knew I could do what I wanted, but they would put you in that in that cast of well he only does one thing yeah yeah, yeah. and it was unfortunate but a lot of the artists i worked with like fleetwood they weren't steely right with eagles no it was fogarty you yeah. know it's it's all different and i try to cater to what each person wants you totally do. I mean look at the list of people we've listed here we've spoken about they're all over the map you know, if anything, the thing they have in common is a level of quality. And that speaks to you, that the people who are really good at what they do want Elliot Shiner on their team, regardless of genre or whatever, you know? Yeah, I hope yeah. so. 
I think it's true. I'll say it for you. Um, he had a couple other questions. Did you ever, and you touched on this a little bit earlier, did you ever have creative differences with people? And have you had to kind of leave a project because of it? I don't think I've ever left a project. Okay. Uh, the only creative difference was with Bruce yeah. in what the piano was or wanted to be. Right. You know, he wanting a Keith Jarrett kind of piano mm -hmm. sound like a Bosendorfer or Chick, you know. Yeah. And uh, but I okay. felt as a, a, a producer that wasn't going to work. Yeah. You know, there had to be something special with what a piano sounds like when Bruce plays it. And that was the only time I ever okay. had the difference. I thought that might be the case. Okay, one last thing from Craig, and I thought this was really interesting too. He, You produced or engineered or mixed a Christmas album that Steve Lukather did. Yeah. And there's a, okay, so he wanted to know specifically about Jingle Bells because that's a duet between Lukather and Sammy Davis Jr. Dashing through the snow in a one horse open sleigh, o'er the fields we go, laughing all the way. Bells on bobtail ring, making spirits bright. What fun it is to ride and sing a sleighing song tonight. Oh, jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. Everybody! Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. Yeah. And Sammy's long gone. So it's like an unforgettable thing with Nat and Natalie Cole. How did you swing this? Well, we, we got the tape. We got approval and we got tape from Sammy's estate. And I I we did a similar arrangement to what was there, same tempo. And I put the tracks, the, the stereo out of phase. So I could just get Sammy's voice. Uh -huh. So you really can't hear much of anything except Sammy. And it gave the appearance, as Steve wanted, I'm singing with Sammy. <laughs> That's all he wanted. And he got it. Yes. And that was such a fun record. Good. I mean, I'm glad. Steve is truly the best. That's what I hear. Yep. Yeah. That's what and I feared. Very funny. Good. Good. I love that story. Oh, I'm glad I asked. That's great. Yeah. Good job, Craig, for bringing that up. Um, okay, two last things. Number one, I had Shelly Yakis on here a few years ago. We started the same day at A&R Recording. Okay. I wondered, because I believe he's on Moondance, too. Yes. And, uh, and so I wondered, because I think of you two doing similar things sometimes with the mixing and the engineering. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I'm not as familiar with what's going on behind the scenes. Tell me about, so you two, you and Shelly started on the same day? That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, but we went with different engineers. Like yeah, okay. I with Bill, and Shelly was working with Roy Sakala. Yeah. And, and at that, you know, we were just. Yeah. Roy would primarily work at night. Uh-huh. So uh, Shelly worked at night. I'd, I'd come in at 10 in the morning, and <laughs> Shelly would be like, his eyes were closed trying to deal with sunlight. <laughs> <laughs> Shelly, you all right? That's great. Yeah, we were good friends. We let, I went to Shelly's wedding. We were it, working at AR at that point, was there was nothing better. I mean, Phil treated everybody with such great respect. Yeah, I bet. And, yeah, it was pretty amazing. Okay, two last questions. Number one, is there anyone, uh, I ask this sometimes with producers, is there somebody you would have liked to have produced if you had given been given the chance? And I don't mean who do you like, but is there someone that when you listen to them, you think I could have really done something with them? I think we would have been on the same page. Well, there is one, and it wasn't because I could have done something. I just wanted to take part in a record with this guy and it's a funny story because i would be asked that a lot Uh who do you want to work with and i would say peter gabriel of course yeah and uh that was always the answer Mm -hmm. and then at the grammys when we were nominated for hell freezes over uh I'm sitting down in the second row, and right next to me is Peter Gabriel. And, uh, you know, I couldn't believe he was right there. Uh, Never uh, had met him. And I turned over to him, and I said, Peter, my name's Ellie Shiner. And uh, he said, Peter Gabriel. And then he, he looked at me, and he said, are you the guy that always wants to work with me? <laughs> and I said, "Yeah," and he said, "What for?" <laughs> so it was a funny moment. Oh, that's hilarious! I got to be honest. I've had several people on here who work with him, like Daniel Lenoir, and yeah. um, it, working with him sounds like it would be hard. tedious. Yeah. Tedious. That's the word. Tedious. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he's a genius. Obviously, he works yeah. very slow. He's made yeah. plenty of money, so he doesn't need to be in a hurry for anything. Tedious yeah. is the word. Okay. Have you, seen, have you seen Phil Collins lately? Oh, so he's been doing kind of a, a farewell tour, and I live in Denver, and he came through here a few years ago before COVID. And I went, and I'd never seen him live. I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. I loved it. And, yeah, you know, too. he's sitting in like a, a chair, almost like an office chair, a swivel chair, kind of in the beginning or in the front of the stage and his giant band with Lee Sklar and everybody's behind him, but he looks so frail and you know that this is going to be one of the last, it was like a living wake. We yeah. were all standing and cheering and goose bumping and loving him because you know, he's not going to be around much longer. Right. You know, it right. was so good. Have you worked with Phil? Yeah, I did uh, Tarzan with him. You did? No way. Yeah. yeah. And it was amazing. I, re- I remember cutting this one track, and he was playing drums on it. And he was in the studio playing, and, I mean, the drum sound was amazing. And it all came together. The track was done. 
and hardly any time at all. It was the theme song for Tarzan. And then he came and sang, and I, I've heard rumors about how he does vocals. And he he used uh, a buyer mic, a 140, I think it was, and he sang in the control room. I had to wear spe speakers, uh, headphones, and he had two, I gave him two, what was it, like KLA speakers put them out of phase and put them right here. And uh, that's the way it went. And it was beautiful. Really? Yeah. Everybody works so differently. Yeah. So not even in the studio. He's in the control room with you with speakers on either side of his head. And that's how he likes to sing. Yeah. Crazy. It was, it was great. Crazy. Wow. I'm sure there's so many things. I mean, like I said, I've, I've, you need like a you know a really strong dedicated uh, website because I'm googling you and I'm picking up pieces from all over the place and some of it I'm not even getting right and I'm sure there's a million things you've done that I don't even I didn't even see or know to ask so you gotta you gotta write a book or something like that sometime. Well, I'm involved in a group called Meta Alliance. Meta Alliance. It's myself, Chuck Henley, um, Frank Filippetti. Uh, Nico Bolas, George Massenberg, Sylvia Massey, and Jimmy Douglas. Okay. And it used to have Al Schmidt, Ed Journey, and Phil. But they've moved on, and we've tried to maintain. And we've decided that at this point in time, there are people out there who want to hear these stories. Yes. Who want to hear... What did you do with Steely on when you recorded this? So what did you do with the Eagles? Or so we're putting together a live stage show. Oh, I'm so glad. And, and we're doing that. We're going across the country and we're doing our first performance here in Connecticut at the Ridgefield Playhouse. Not sure of the day yet. Probably late fall. And we're gonna do this. Just I love it. Just for the hell of it. Yes. Talk about yes. It's going to be called Storytellers. Something. That's it. Yeah. Genius. 
That's exactly why I started this podcast and seek out people like you is because this is the currency now is to hear these kinds of story stories from legends like you. Bill Schnee was on here a couple of years ago. I just spoke to Bill yesterday. Oh, I love him. Tell him hi for me. He was on here a couple of years ago talking about his book and similarly telling these fantastic stories about all the people that he's worked, Steely Dan included, people he's worked with yeah. and things he's done. And that is the currency. That's the value. I mean, there's lots of value that you have to offer, but some people go play their songs live. You guys can go tell your stories live. Yeah. It's just as valuable. Right. We feel yeah. so. Good. You deserve it. Thanks. Uh, okay, Elliot, you're uh, a legend. Thank you for talking with me. I did. I was wondering, okay, and this is, we play a, an intro song and an outro song, and I'm curious if there is a song, it can be as deep a cut as you want, that you worked on the mix or the engineering or whatever, that you think, I got it exactly right on this song, and I would love for, not enough people know it. I want to play it, and I want to play it right here to end our little conversation. Haitian divorce. Really? <laughs> Good one. Yes. Why? Why Haitian divorce? It was about me. Re really? You got a Haitian divorce? Yeah. We were doing Royal Scam, and uh, <laughs> my accountant called me up and said, this was October, and he said, you know, you need to get divorced before the year ends. And I said, well, how am I going to do that? And he said, well, you can go to Haiti or the Dominican Republic. Uh, call your lawyer. He can find out what's wh wh which one is valid. Yeah. And uh, I said, okay. And he, my lawyer calls me back and says, Haiti. So I tell Donald and Walter and Gary that I can't work next week. I'm going down to Haiti for divorce. And Donald looked at me. Walter was puzzled. Donald said, what are you talking about? It was like new to all of us. And I said, that's what it is. I'm going down there. And when I got back, uh, they both asked me what it was like. You know, and I went through the whole story of what it was like for me. The song really didn't have any bearing on uh -huh. what, what I went there for. But it was uh, sparked an idea. Yeah, it did. <laughs> I had no idea. idea. Yeah. That is the best. That is yeah. the best. You're married to Diana Canova, right? Yeah. The actress. Yeah. She yes. loves soap and everything. Yeah. yeah. Good for you. That is, a, I had no idea when I, I was going to skip over that question. And I'm glad I didn't because we're going to play Asian <laughs> Divorce right now and think about yeah. you. Cool. Thank you, Elliot, for all the good you put in the world. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm glad I did this. Joe said I would have an amazing time doing oh, it. Oh, good. I'm thankful. All right. There you have it. Elliot Shiner. Was that great? So much interesting information in there. What a career. And like I said, I think he's got seven or eight Grammys and probably almost that many Emmys. It's crazy. The guy is so decorated. I just love talking to people like this. And thank you also to Joe D'Ambrosio for making this happen. Thank you, Joe, for hooking me up. Now, I wanted to, I mean, he said it himself. We got to close with Haitian divorce because this song is about him. <laughs> I, 
That is just some of the best rock trivia ever. That is exactly the kind of thing that we strive to do here, is to fill in these gaps and answer these questions for you. Now, next week, we're talking to one of the key, one of the members, key members of one of the key Britpop bands uh, of the late 80s, early 90s, specifically Shoegaze. And this person recently put out a book about their life, which is one of the best rock books I've ever read. And having said all this, I probably just gave away who it is, but I don't care because this book and this interview is amazing. This person is great. Huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man Mokavich, my right-hand man, for everything that you do. You guys can like our page on Facebook. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on X or whatever it is at The Hustle Pod. Now, also, after having taken a couple months off of doing any bonus stuff, it's starting to pile back up. Deep dives, book clubs, bonus episodes, promo modes, whatever it might be. So, depending on Yan's schedule, I'm just going to keep throwing stuff his way, and if he gets it out, he gets it out. So, you might see one of those things this weekend. I don't know for sure. Hopefully, you do. Okay? Thanks, everybody. We love you.